We'll read the first 17 verses of chapter 9. The word of God where it says, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it? that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. I should have prayed before that uh, God would open our minds to understand his word, so maybe we'll pray now. Lord, uh, as we come to your word, uh, we've just heard it read, Lord, as, we, uh, as I seek to explain it, Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand, Lord, we pray that you would keep us from error, keep us from unbelief, Lord, we pray that your words would penetrate our hearts, that they would uh, convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, Lord, that they would call us to follow Jesus, they would uh, instil in us faith. They would, that they would uh, warm our hearts so that we love you with all our being. Father, we ask it not for our own sake, 
but so that Jesus might be honoured among us and in the world. Amen. Well, as as Ben said, the uh, title for the sermon this morning is Jesus and Sin. Uh, I was talking with my brother on Friday night and we were talking about sermon titles and how we're not very good at coming up with sermon titles and uh, I thought that mine took the cake for the worst (laughs) sermon title ever invented. Ah, it's about Jesus. Next week it will be God <laughs> or, or something like that. But uh, it's the best I could do. It used up all my creativity uh, to come up with that title. Uh, I guess the reason that uh, it's called that is because over the last few weeks we've been dealing with those big themes uh, in these two chapters of Matthew about faith and the identity of Jesus Uh, But so far the miracles that he's done have focused on his power over creation. So Jesus has cleansed uh, the leper, he's healed the servant uh, of the centurion, he's healed all the people who came to uh, Peter's house, he's healed Peter's mother, Uh, he's driven the demons out into the herd of pigs. There have been hints about the broader significance of Jesus' ministry. There was that quote from Isaiah 53, he took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. But for the most part, it's really been pretty physical. It's all been about sickness and things like that. But now, all of a sudden, the the direction, the tone, I guess, the full significance of Jesus' ministry begins to be unpacked in these sections by Matthew. Uh, We begin to see this picture of Jesus' ministry as a ministry which deals with sin. Well, the first uh, of these three sections uh, deals with Jesus healing uh, the paralytic, ma- the paralysed man. Jesus has uh, he's just healed those uh, two guys possessed by demons, uh, and he's come home to his to his hometown, uh, and a group of four guys bring a paralysed man lying on a bed. What's interesting is, is that as they put this present this guy before Jesus, instead of saying, get up and walk, he says something entirely unexpected. He says, your sins are forgiven. That in turn causes this controversy. The teachers of the law, the religious leaders of the day are shocked by what Jesus says and they start saying among themselves that Jesus is blaspheming. Now, it might be a little bit uh, peculiar to us why they would think that Jesus was blaspheming, but Uh, the record of the conversation in Mark's Gospel uh, fills out a little bit more of the details and makes it explicit. So when Mark, the scribes say to Jesus, he's blaspheming, who can forgive sins but God alone? So they're they're accusing Jesus of taking upon himself uh, something that belongs to God. To illustrate the principle, uh, Don Carson has at times used the illustration of a lady a woman who's been attacked, uh, attacked and raped and beaten and left for dead. Uh, and imagine that a friend goes to this woman lying in this hospital. She's dejected. She's she's wounded. Uh, and then her friend, you know, she's she's a broken woman. And and her friend says to her, "Don't worry. Take heart. I've forgiven your attacker." Carson says, rightly, not only would that be extraordinarily stupid, an extraordinarily stupid thing to say, it would be deeply offensive 
because the friend has no right to grant that forgiveness. Only the offended party can do that. It's the prerogative of the offended party. And if that's true at the human level, then how much more so at the divine level? How is it possible that a a human could say on behalf of God, oh, I forgive you, unless that person is God himself? In granting forgiveness to this man, Jesus is claiming nothing other than that he is God himself and that he has, because of that, the authority to forgive sins. But the religious leaders, uh, they couldn't believe that. They couldn't believe what Jesus was claiming and so he asks them this rather cryptic question. He says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? The implication uh, behind Jesus' question seems to be uh, that it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. After all, how can you test that, right? If, uh, if I say your sins are forgiven, you know, it, no one will be able to observe any difference. But if I say get up and walk, well immediately that's open to verification. If the person doesn't get up and walk, well then it was just, they were just empty words, weren't they? it's pretty easy to test the authenticity. Jesus raises a profound and deeply significant question and that is, how can we know that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins? How can we know? I wonder uh, if you've ever wrestled with that question. How can I trust Jesus can forgive my sins? Uh, Why should I trust him? After all, if we don't have any reasons to believe that he can, then we're wasting our time, aren't we? If we don't believe, if there's no reason to believe Jesus has the authority to forgive our sins, then his words are just blasphemy, aren't they? Maybe you've wrestled with that question in the past. Maybe you're wrestling with that question at the moment. Maybe it's a question that you might wrestle with in the future if you don't think about it now. The important thing to observe here though is that Jesus addressed the question that the Pharisees had and he addressed our question by healing this paralysed man. In verse 6 Jesus says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. Why should you trust that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins because he healed that man. But so that you would know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I'll I'll show you a verifiable miracle. Not only did Jesus heal this one man, he also healed lots of people. The miracles uh, that Jesus did achieved lots of things. Uh, One is to foreshadow the restoration of the whole creation which Jesus is going to bring when he comes again. But no less significant is the fact that they show who Jesus is. They demonstrate that he is the Son of God. They demonstrate his authority as God over creation and in doing that they also demonstrate his authority to forgive our sins. Are you struggling to believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins? then meditate and reflect on the miracles that Jesus did. 
Even beyond uh, the miracles, Matthew has been working pretty hard to prove to us that Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, he showed how Jesus fulfils the Old Testament, uh, not least in, in, this, uh, in the last chapter by showing how Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 53, that uh, the Messiah would take up our sicknesses and our de- diseases uh, by dying in our place. So if you're struggling to believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins, then test the claims that Matthew makes. Read through the Gospel of Matthew, read uh, through the quotes that he makes from the Old Testament, go back to the Old Testament and read them in their original setting and test and see whether Jesus really is who Matthew claims he is, the Son of God who has the authority to forgive sins. But not only uh, that, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus prove to us as well that he has the authority to forgive sins. You see, at one level, uh, Jesus answer the, uh, the answer to Jesus' question is not as straightforward as it might first appear. There's a guy by the name of John Nolan. He points out that the answer to Jesus' question all depends on whether the words are empty words or whether they're true words. You see, if the words, your sins are forgiven, are empty words, then they're easy to say, aren't they? If, if you don't mean it, if there's nothing behind it, you can just say your sins are forgiven. But if you mean it, if God is saying your sins are forgiven, those are, those are hard words to say because they're hard words to do. It's costly for God to bring about forgiveness. And so on the cross, Jesus showed, God showed that there's something standing behind those words you are forgiven. There's a reason, because the wrath of God was, was, was taken up by Jesus on the cross. It seems to me that one of the intellectual problems uh, with uh, Islam, for example, is that, there's, is that there's no basis for forgiveness. So many, so many of the world's religions talk about forgiveness, but there's no, there's no ground for it. There's no ground for forgiveness and justice. How can you forgive and justice be done? That's the great problem which Paul wrestles with in Romans chapter 3. But the cross brings them together. The cross gives us a reason to believe that Jesus' words are not empty words. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead proves that Jesus' words are not empty words. So that first section with the healing uh, of this paralysed man, demonstrates to us that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. In this second section, we find out how that authority to forgive sins shapes Jesus' mission and ministry. In verse 1 and 2, Jesus finds Matthew sitting at uh, the tax collector's booth uh, and when Jesus calls out to him, Sorry, verse 9 and 10, that should be. Uh, When Jesus calls out to Matthew to follow him, Matthew gets up uh, and follows. And as a result of that, Matthew then invites Jesus and his disciples and a whole host of other people to a big party, uh, a big feast. At the party are a whole uh, bunch of other tax collectors and other sinners. Uh, The tax collectors, you may know, were the outcasts in society. That's because they were shonky 
and they would ask for more money than they really deserved uh, and so a lot of people didn't like them. Uh, another reason that they weren't liked, particularly by the Jewish people, was because as tax collectors they had a lot of contact with Gentile people who were considered uh, unclean. And so people who were concerned, the Jews who were concerned about ceremonial purity, also didn't like the tax collectors for that reason as well. So when uh, these Pharisees, these religious leaders uh, who are concerned about those kinds of things, when they see Jesus eating with uh, these tax collectors and sinners, they, they ask Jesus' disciples in verse 11, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? And it, to answer that uh, question, Jesus uses an illustration. In verse 12 he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then at the end of verse 13, for I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. The implication, uh, I think, is pretty clear. Why is Jesus spending time with tax collectors like Matthew? Jesus' answer is because just like the mission of a doctor is to help the sick, to heal the sick, Jesus' mission is to heal sinners, to help sinners. Imagine uh, if you turn up uh, at the emergency department uh, of the hospital with your arm hanging off. Uh, you'd lost a few litres of blood. I can see Peter there thinking, you'd probably be dead if you've lost a few litres of blood or something like that. But anyway, you've lost a few litres of blood, you're feeling faint, uh, you're on the edge of death uh, and the doctor comes out and says to you, I'm sorry, there's been a terrible mistake. Uh, we only treat well people in this hospital. Maybe you should try the chemist. It would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? It would be utterly mad if that happened because the whole purpose of a hospital is to treat sick people. The great oddity is, is that when we think about the ministry and the mission of Jesus is that we think that it works the other way around, don't we? We might think that Jesus only accepts the righteous and the good and the people who've got it together. And we fail to realise that actually Jesus is the great physician of the soul and that his entire mission and ministry is to help sinners. In fact, if God's emergency department is anything like a real emergency department, then the people who get the most comprehensive and the most immediate care are the people who are in the most dire need. To push the analogy even further, can you imagine... Uh, if somebody cut their, their arm off uh, and then their wife said to them, we really ought to get you to the hospital, Bob. And Bob says, no, no, I'll just wait until I get a bit better before I go to the hospital. Uh, I don't want to be too sick when I arrive there. It would be madness, wouldn't it? Because the whole purpose of a hospital is to heal the sick. And in the same way, the entire ministry of Jesus, the entire purpose of Jesus' ministry is to heal sinners, to help sinners, to rescue sinners. The fundamental mistake of the Pharisees was to misunderstand that, to think that Jesus' ministry was to the righteous. And Jesus says, no, you're horribly wrong. But not only that, if the mistake the Pharisees made was to misunderstand that Jesus' ministry 
was to sinners, their other great error was to fail to see that that included them. In the middle of uh, these comments about the righteous and sinners and doctors and all that, Jesus quotes from uh, the Old Testament. Uh, He tells the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The quote comes uh, from Hosea chapter 6 and it helps to go back uh, to read a bit more of Hosea. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Hosea. So Hosea is uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. So it's at the back of the Old Testament. Hosea 6. And we read from uh, chapter 6, verse 4. God says, What can I do with you, Ephraim? That's one of the tribes of Israel. What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flashed like lightning upon you. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Like Adam, they broke the covenant. They were unfaithful to me. Gilead is a city of wicked men, stained with footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a man, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, committing shameful crimes. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There Ephraim is given to prostitution and Israel is defiled. Do you see what what God is saying through Hosea to the people? He's saying that his... His his own people, the people of God, are far from God. They might have been doing the sacrifices and things like that, but there are priests waiting at the edge of the road to to hijack people. What Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is, don't think that the people of God are don't need this ministry that I have to sinners. Don't think that they aren't sinners too. My ministry isn't just to tax collectors and sinners. My mission, Jesus says, is to you, to Pharisees as well. The historic people of God. In some ways the Pharisees are like those people who can never quite bring themselves to go to the doctor because they don't think that they're sick. I won't ask any wives to put up their hands, but how many wives have husbands who never go to the doctor? Who refuse to go to the doctor because they're not as sick as they think they are. Or no, they're sicker than they think they are. That's the one. But how many of us are like that when it comes to doctors? And yet we're also like that when it comes to Jesus. We don't bother to go. We never make the effort to go, to come to Christ. Because deep down, we don't really think that we need him. It's like the person uh, who cuts their arm off and says it's only a flesh wound. No, we need to realise as much as the Pharisees needed to realise that Jesus' ministry is to sinners and we're all sinners and we're all in need of that ministry and we're all in need of that forgiveness. From the tax collector 
to the person in prison, to the successful businessman, to the Christian minister or to the Sunday school teacher. We all need the ministry of Jesus and his authority to forgive sins. So these first two sections have shown the authority of Jesus to forgive sins and the shape of his ministry. That is, it's a ministry mercifully to sinners, to people like us. And this third section is a little bit more curious. At first it might seem a bit disconnected from the other two. Uh, But what's interesting is if you read in Matthew, Mark and Luke that these three stories always are found together and they're always found in exactly the same order which suggests that they're all to be understood together. They're mutually explanatory. They explain each other. Uh, So what's the point uh, of this last section, I guess, is the question and how does it relate Uh, to what we've already seen about the authority of Jesus to forgive sins and his mission to sinners. Well, this section uh, begins, seems to begin with the last one left off. Jesus and his disciples are are feasting uh, and John the Baptist's disciples come and ask what's going on. They say, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast but your disciples don't fast? And then to answer that that question, uh, Jesus gives three illustrations. The first illustration is the one about the bridegroom and the guests. He says in verse 15, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's still with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. So Jesus is saying quite simply that his presence on earth is a cause for celebration. a time will come, he says, when the bridegroom will be taken away. This isn't just talking about, you know, at the end of the wedding where the bridegroom goes away and, and sort of, you know, he's talking about the bridegroom coming and being taken away. There's something almost sinister about what's going on here. There's this, there's this feasting, there's this joy and then the bridegroom is, is taken. What Jesus is doing is he's talking about his death. He's saying that the time around his death at the would be a time of great mourning, uh, a time of great sorrow, a time when fasting again would be appropriate. But at the time while he's with them, uh, it was inappropriate. Uh, Then Jesus uh, uses two other illustrations, uh, the one about the cloth uh, and the one about the wineskins. The one about the cloth, I think, is relatively clear. If you sew unshrunk cloth on an old garment, then when it shrinks, the, the, the patch is going to make a, a worse hole. Uh, and in regard to the wineskins, uh, old wineskins, they were made out of skin and they would become brittle and if you put wine in them that was still fermenting, uh, then the gases that, was, that came through the fermentation process would uh, cause the bag to expand and then to split and so it would, it would destroy both the wine and the wineskin. The basic point is that new and old, are incompatible. Now, it's important to remember that all these three illustrations are a response to the question about fasting. This is talking first and foremost about fasting, whether it's appropriate in uh, his presence or not. Uh, So what's Jesus saying? 
Uh, It helps also to understand uh, that in the Old Testament, fasting was uh, tied up with often with judgment. It was tied up with mourning over judgment. Uh, It was tied up with mourning over sin in order to escape judgment. Uh, It was, for example, explicitly commanded on the Day of Atonement. Uh, So uh, it's referred to there as afflicting yourselves. Uh, Or this is what the king of Nineveh decreed after hearing Jonah's message. Remember Jonah went to Nineveh to, uh, to warn them about God's judgment and the king of Nineveh replies, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Well, here's what David said uh, about the death of one of his children. While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. So, as you look through the Old Testament, you get this picture that fasting is tied up with mourning and sorrow and judgment. But Jesus is saying that his presence has made that inappropriate and it's not hard to see why in the light of the previous two sections about Jesus' authority to forgive sins and his mission to sinners. Jesus is saying that in him a new age has dawned where sin has been decisively dealt with and that makes fasting, at least in the traditional sense, in some ways deeply inappropriate. That transformation was already anticipated in the Old Testament. Uh, Listen to these words from Zechariah chapter 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fasts of your fourth, fifth, seventh and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. So they had these fasts, they had all these regular fasts that they were supposed to carry out and God's saying, the time is coming when you're not going to fast on those days anymore, you're going to feast. Why is that? Well, this is what he says a few verses before. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I had determined to bring disaster upon you and showed no pity when your fathers angered me, says the Lord Almighty, so now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. In the past God had determined to to bring disaster because of the sins of the people. Now he says, now I've determined to do good again. How will those days be characterised? He goes on to say, such a beautiful image here of, of our present age. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, Let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem and seek the Lord Almighty and to to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, Let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Is a picture, is it not, of the coming in of the nations to the city of God, to the 
to be the people of God. Jesus is picking up on all this and saying that a new age has dawned with his coming to earth to deal with sin and to save sinners. God had determined to bring disaster but now he had determined to do good again. There was always that uncertainty, wasn't there? I mean, think of the king of Nineveh. Who knows whether God might relent? Or David, while my child was still alive, I didn't know, I fasted and I wept because I said, who knows whether God might relent? But we know, don't we? Things have changed with the coming of Jesus. We know that if we trust in Jesus, he has the authority to forgive sins and his ministry and mission is to sinners. In a sense then, to continue to fast in the old way is inappropriate because it fails to realise the joy of the salvation which Jesus has brought about. I think it's easy to uh, make the mistake as we read the Old Testament, to make the mistake that John's disciples made to see, that the t- to see in the Old Testament those times of deep sorrow and of judgement and of fasting and to think that those same things ought to mark our day but that fails to understand the radical shift which Jesus has brought about in his death and resurrection. Sin has been conquered. God's wrath has been put away once and for all. The Day of Atonement has been fulfilled in the work of Christ. Yes, the world remains marred by sin. Yes, the world remains scarred by it. Yes, there is judgement coming on those who don't repent and trust in Jesus. Yes, we ought to weep for them and plead for God to have mercy. But the work of Jesus that ushered in a new age of joy which can't be overshadowed by those realities. Is there still a place for fasting? That's the question that we all want to know. Uh, That's a hard question. I think there are two things worth saying about that. The first is, it's not mentioned much in the New Testament. Uh, it's a pretty, it, you know, it's, it's around a bit in the Old Testament, but it's only mentioned twice in the New Testament in Acts chapter 13 and in Acts chapter 14. Uh, the second thing to say is that on both occasions it's connected with prayer, and on the first occasion it's linked with the gathered worship of the church, uh, and on the second occasion it's, sent, it's connected with sending out missionaries. It's not connected in the same way with that, doesn't seem to be connected with that same idea of intense mourning and, uh, and, and, and weeping that it was in the Old Testament. That first example in Acts chapter 13, it's connected with worship, it's connected with joy. They were, the impression is that they were fasting with joy. And I think that's the point really. I think that suggests that the kind of fasting which the New Testament kind of maybe supports is qualitatively different from that of the Old Testament. It is paradoxically a fasting of joy and anticipation rather than a fasting of sorrow and of lament. It's a fasting which, which waits for Jesus to come back, a fasting which looks to the finished work on the cross and anticipates and longs for the, the ultimate climax and the culmination and the bringing to fulfilment of everything that Jesus' ministry is about. The point is that Jesus, at the end of the day, the point is that Jesus 
ministry is ushered in this new age of joy and of celebration. Few things have struck me, I think, and stayed with me as powerfully as the story uh, that my friend once told me. He told me how when he'd been at university, he'd been a very serious Christian. Sometimes that university does that to people because it's a very intense environment. Uh, it's an it's a environment of warfare often between uh, the world and Christianity. And he was, uh, he was serious about Christianity. He was dedicated utterly to holiness and to refuting error. Uh, but when his birthday came around, his father wrote him a card and uh, he said to me that what his father wrote on that card had stayed with him forever. It shocked him. His father just wrote this. I pray that you would know joy. He was committed to God. He loved God. He was committed to fighting for the truth. But there was something missing. And that's what Jesus was saying to John's disciples. He was saying, don't you understand what I am doing and what I have done? I've come to forgive sins. And you need that. And I've done it. I wonder how many of us need to pray that prayer and to keep praying it. Father, give me joy in the Gospel. I wonder how many of us are still living in that old age of sorrow and uncertainty when Jesus has ushered in a new age of joy and assurance. This isn't talking about happiness. He's not talking about that kind of superficial feeling that you have sometimes. He's talking about that deep and tangible joy which surpasses all understanding. It's a joy grounded in the authority of Jesus to forgive sins through the cross and a joy in the mission and ministry of Jesus to come to sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, if we look at our lives in all honesty and in all truth, Lord, we have to confess that perhaps our greatest sin is to be joyless Christians. Lord, perhaps our greatest mistake is to know the truth about what Jesus has done and yet, Lord, to be so discouraged, so sad. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for that through the work that Jesus has done on the cross. Lord, we thank you so much that he has the authority to forgive our sins Thank you that we can have the assurance that that's true, objectively grounded in history, in the Old Testament, in his resurrection from the dead. Lord, help us to believe that Jesus came for people like us, whose lives are utterly corrupt apart from him. But Lord, most of all, we pray that you would awaken in each of our hearts 
that deep and abiding joy which comes through knowing Christ and being found in him. Not having a righteousness of our own which comes through works but a righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to know that, to love that, to be excited about that, to be filled to overflowing with that unspeakable, unsurpassable joy which comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask it all in his name. Amen.